Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, Crime Writers fans. Some sad news to kick off the show. Laura Bricker's beloved cat, Stampy, who was the inspiration for our Cat of the Week segment, passed away this week. If you follow us on social media, you might know that he ate a petal from a lily, which was in a bouquet of flowers in Laura's house. And as it turns out, lilies are very toxic to cats. So PSA, keep your lilies away from your cats or just don't bring lilies in the house if you have cats. Second, I want to do a little call out. Laura got Stampy from an organization called Cats First in Newfields, New Hampshire. It's a grassroots rescue which deals with stray, feral, or abandoned cats. Once they trap, fix, and then vaccinate and re-release the moms, they work to find homes for feral kittens, which is how Stampy came into Laura's life. Stampy was found in a rural New Hampshire trailer park where a man thought some kittens were in a shed behind a trailer. Turns out those kittens were hiding under a wooden pallet. The man would lift the pallet and Betsy, who runs cats first, would reach in and grab the kittens by their tails to get them out one by one. When Laura and her family came to look for a kitten, Betsy told them she had an orange male known for being great family cats and wanted him to go to someone she knew. She had a feeling it was going to be a good one, she said. Stampy was adopted by Laura's family exactly three years ago this week. Betsy had named him Wayne, but Laura's son changed his name to Stampy after a Minecraft character. Now, Cats First, they're a small grassroots group. They would really appreciate donations to help cats like Stampy go to great homes. Donations can be made on the Rescue's website. Just search for Cats First in Newfields, New Hampshire, and we'll put a button on our website. But you can make your donation by PayPal or by mail. And in honor of Stampy, we are going to be suspending our Cat of the Week segment for the time being. We'll bring it back when we feel up to it. Thanks a lot. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Madison Reed is revolutionizing the way women like me color their hair with gorgeous salon quality, multidimensional hair color delivered to your door on your schedule. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and who have loved Madison Reed. Visit madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with promo code WRITERS. That's madison-reed.com. Use the promo code WRITERS. Support for today's show comes from Audible. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers. Great books like Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash crime. crime. That's audible.com slash crime, crime for a free audiobook with your 30-day trial.
I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about true crime, pop culture, journalism. And this week, we'll dive in depth into the Netflix series everyone seems to be talking about, a different take on FBI profilers called Mindhunter. Also, a true crime update puts a potential new suspect in the spotlight in the never-ending appeals in the Stephen Avery Making a Murderer case. Joining me to dive into all that is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, the somewhat recovered Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Namaste, Rebecca. (laughs) Oh, that's very zen of you, Kevin. I'm trying to uh, channel Toby and what he might say tonight. So. Nice. Beat him to the punch. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, licensed private investigator, former defense investigator, and passive-aggressive backseat driver, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. That's me. I see hazards everywhere, Rebecca, so, you know, I, I just can't help myself. And then you don't talk about them until a week later, hence the passive-aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, our favorite skeptic and sometimes cynic, the guy who binged a whole TV show just because I forced him to do it, the brilliant novelist behind the City Trilogy and co-host of the Radio Free Dystopia podcast, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. As former President John Kerry once said, reporting for duty. <laughs> former he, president. He wasn't president. I, just, I don't know where you were in the 2000s. Damn it. He meant uh, presidential nominee. Really? Is that what he meant? Yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure that's what he meant, too. Uh, all right, well. And he was the only one who ever said that, too. It's true. Reporting for duty. It's... It, was a, it was a touching moment. <laughs> oh. You know, at the top of the show, we did have a little PSA about poor Stampy, our inspiration for mm-hmm. Cat of the Week. But, Laura, you know, I mentioned in that PSA how poor Stampy met his end. But do you just want to, like, do a little bit of educational, um, you know, material about the hazards uh, of lilies and and what you're trying to do about that? So this um, actually happened last Thursday night, and I never knew that lilies were poisonous to cats. I always thought poinsettias were poisonous to cats. I mean, chocolate was poisonous to dogs. And, um, you know, we're having one of those crazy family dinners, and we say, Stampy, what are you doing? Because he's always into something. And he was chomping on a lily petal that had fallen off of a bouquet. Um, And then, you know, less than 24 hours later, he was having seizures and rushed to the emergency vet. And, you know, they tried to give him some IV fluids. But at that point, it was really too late. So, you know, I never knew that lilies were poisonous. And since word has spread about poor Stampy, I found so many of my friends, many lifelong cat people also had no idea. So I am on a mission. Um, I'm going to be writing a guest uh, blog post for the... um, local New Hampshire SPCA about what happened. We've contacted some local flower shops, um, also talked, uh, planning ahead to local churches about Easter with the Easter lilies. And my son is going to be, you know, he's a really good artist. He's working on a poster about this. Um, So it's just, uh, you know, it was a horrible thing. It was a total freak thing. And I'm just hoping no one else has to go through something like that. Yeah. Yeah, And it was we were all so sad to hear about it. And, you know, I told you that, like, I'm not up for cat of the week right now because Stampy was our original cat of the week. Mm -hmm. Um, So why don't we just bring it back when we feel like we can? Does that sound good, Laura? Sounds good. So let's make an awkward turn to some exciting <laughs> chit-chat topics, yeah. shall we? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to be depressing, folks, but I have to say also you mean quickly. human death the, now? Well, yeah. I have to say that our Crime Writers On listeners, I cannot believe the amount of support I got on Twitter and Facebook and email. from. I, I got hundreds of messages from people. So thank you, everybody. It, yeah. was, it really was an awful time, and I appreciate all the thoughts from people. Listen, Stampy's Chlamydia... 
w- inspired <laughs> the world. Yeah. And, you know, you yes. also educated the world about the hazards of chlamydia with cats. Mm-hmm. So you're doing a great service, yes. I think, for I all know. of us who have pets <laughs> and all of us who might have pets. And uh, Stampy was where it all started. So And our listeners yes. out there and the ones who are also on social media are like, so awesome. They're the best. Rebecca, imagine how when I divorce you, how supportive they're going to be. <laughs> they're going to be all There's going to be you. a GoFundMe. They're going <laughs> to like uh, fund the entire thing for Rebecca. Her defense fund. GoFundMe for Rebecca's divorce lawyer. Yeah. Uh, yes. To, to Dean steal Strang. the- Dean Strang. Come in. He's going to come right in. <laughs> to steal the, in. these are their stories, Law and Order podcast empire from you. Yeah. <laughs> it's your empire. Well, speaking of our fans on social media, I just want to tell you guys, I don't know if you know this, but we passed- 2,000 members of our Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group Damn! this week. A thing that started, what, like two weeks ago? (laughs) And those people, man, they're helping produce the show. They're giving the earliest and best feedback about what we talked about. They're really kind of the go-to, really in-it fans of the show. So I will say, if you have not yet checked out the official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group, it's kind of where it's at. Twitter has always been where it's at, I think, mm-hmm. for us. And mm-hmm. I think we can carefully and comfortably now add the Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. Kevin, what do you think of those people? I think it's great. I think Lisa deserves a hell of a lot of credit for not only bringing it together, but for being the admin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not just about, hey, what was on Crime Writers on? Because that wouldn't be much of a, I think, of a, a, a quality Facebook group. What do you think about Kevin's cough? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot to say about that. However, you guys talk about like, you know, you you trade podcast ideas and talk about other things that you're into and looking for recommendations. And, you know, if you like the kind of concept that Crime Writers On is a bunch of people who like each other sitting around coming up with, you know, smart ideas, then you can do that with, you know, a whole bunch of new friends on Facebook this way, yeah. And with us. And with us, that's right, we do go on there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's always a blast when, like, I post something and everyone is amazed that it's me, and I'm like, no, I'm on Facebook just like the rest of you guys, wasting my afternoon. I actually exist. (laughs) I had one this afternoon. I had posted something about the wine and cheese tasting on my regular Facebook page up at the Newfield Country Store, home of the scones. And Patrick Hines was like, oh, that sounds so charming. And someone's like, oh, my God, you know Patrick Hines? Uh, (laughs) So so it's, yes, celebrities were just like you. Like, what is that in Us Weekly? Yes. Well, speaking of our friend of the show. who wore it better, Toby? (laughs) Speaking of our friend of the show, Patrick Hines, Toby, would you like to fill us in on your little Patrick Hines counter? Uh, Of course, Patrick Hines, for listeners who maybe living under a rock is the host of the true crime obsessed podcast and the broadway backstory podcast and the theater people podcast and he's also on my new podcast hgtv and me he's sort of like our brother in new york city so uh toby tell us about your encounter with mr patrick hines uh i had a very nice brunch with uh patrick and his husband and his adorable daughter daisy mm-hmm. and that was after uh my wife and daughter went to see hamilton which totally blew them away. Patrick's pretty great, right? Patrick's awesome, yeah. There was like a lot of like back and forth about like where we're going to meet and, and all this stuff, but we, we had a really nice... Uh, <laughs> why is that funny? I just, just trying to make plans with you. I think it'd be kind of amusing <laughs> in New York City. Which phone number did he try to text? That's the That's question, right, Toby. Yeah. <laughs> Laura, do you want to fill our listeners in on what you're talking about? Yes, I joke. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, at one point, like, no, none of us at had one the point, same. Like, it's still, still happening. I don't even know. We, we had, like, 10 different phone numbers for Toby. So anytime we were having, like, connection problems, Rebecca would be like, I'm going to text Toby. And then we'd get this message, this isn't Toby, it's his wife. Or, like, it would just go into, like, a void. And we'd be like, where is Toby? Yeah. Whose phone is this? 10 years ago. <laughs> to yeah. this day, I still open up my contact in my phone for Toby Ball. There are, like, seven phone numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and every time I share it with someone, like, Patrick or, like Laura at last week, I'm like, Godspeed. <laughs> I have no idea which one is the Start right one. Start from the top and work your way down. He'll answer eventually. Yeah, you got to work for it. Uh, me. Uh, so it was a good time? Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, we had a really good time. Had a, had a fun conversation and uh, some good food. And uh, I was trying to convince him. Uh, I guess he's got family in Boston to uh, let us know next time he was doing that. We yeah, could we'd love to see him get together. Steve. Well, that sounds like a really good time, and I'm glad that you finally met Patrick Hines. Laura, you are the last one. You are the one That's right. out. You have yet to meet Patrick and his husband, Steve, and you are really missing out, so we got to make yeah. that happen. Yeah. It's, it's, it's oh, on yeah. the list. You know, Patrick's going to hook me up with those Harry Potter uh, tickets. I know he's going to do it. <laughs> I, don't, I know there was a big kerfuffle about the tickets, but I think Patrick can pull through. But the, but the other, the, the one plug for you, we listened to, when we were driving and we listened to the two Broadway backstory episodes about Hamilton, which were really great. Yeah. I mean, they're they're really, really good. And the story is great. And uh, Patrick did a great job of, uh, of putting it together and making it really compelling. And he's got some great interviews and, and stuff. So if you're at all interested in Hamilton, I would definitely check that out. And the amazing thing, too, about Patrick is he's 100% self-taught. Like, he never worked at a radio station like I do. Mm-hmm. He never did anything with audio. He just decided to try start making a podcast. And he just started yeah, doing it and he has a, a lot of aptitude he's a great talent he is all right so moving on from patrick okay. temporarily yeah. <laughs> spoiler alert he may yeah. make an appearance later in the show kevin um you were quoted in rolling stone magazine today. i know i feel so cool and our show got a mention because of this little thing that you had to say about something we talked about a couple weeks ago dirty john I see it in our Facebook discussion group. I see it on Twitter. I see it online. There is a lot of Deborah blaming that kind of is going on in the discussion oh, around really? this podcast. Somebody told me that they think this podcast is about basically it's a podcast about the worst parent in the entire world. It's Dirty John. It's not Stupid Deborah. Well, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> but oh, that's also, a good slogan, Kevin. Yes. <laughs> so, Kevin, you've now been quoted. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I stand by it. <laughs> I was really surprised by the reaction, the pushback to to Deborah. I mean, I, I don't want to bring it down, but our listeners are like so sophisticated, and wow. yet there were people. No, they they are, and yet in this case, there were people who were talking like, if she had been beaten like in a conventional domestic abuse way, would you be saying like? Oh, well, she was weird. Yeah. And she had to come. This is essentially what people are saying. Right. I, can't, I, I cannot possibly do the, the thing walking a mile in high heels and then come on and say, yeah, she's kind of crazy. She kind of had to come in and she led to things that led to her daughter getting stabbed and attacked. I just can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the biggest pushback we got, we got lots of emails after our show mm-hmm. on both sides. People saying, like, good for you guys for not blaming Deborah. And then we got a lot of pushback. People saying, like... 
she put her kids in danger, and as a but mother, you could she say that about an, any that's battered right. woman. That's right, and her kids are also adults, and she's yeah. and and it, so I mean I, I think it's a it's it's a nuanced situation. Um, and that Rolling Stone piece, which by the way was written by our friend Amelia McDonald Perry. I don't want to like pretend that you were just quoted in Rolling Stone like randomly. It was somebody we know who wrote well, the well, article. Uh, well, yeah. to be fair, um, but we she didn't ask her to do that. But she, yeah. she does actually interview Christopher Goffert, and yeah. he has the same reaction to the pushback against Debbie yeah. that you. Do. Look, there's a thing called victimology, which is a science where you look at not it's not victim blaming. You look in a clinical way as to why did this perpetrator choose this victim? Is it this? she had blonde hair? He was walking down uh, an alleyway that was dark and that made him a target. You know, why did the perpetrator skip these three people in it and go after this person? So there are things about Deborah and her family that you can clinically say. Okay, this is part of the victimology. She's been married she was four a, other times. She's, she had she's money. Vulnerable. She right. Yep. She was you know she had um, you know bad luck in relationships. She's she craving attention and, and you love. Know, yep. You know five, six, seven, eight things you can you can list off, and people can be personally frustrated at, by her personality. But then to to go uh, as far as some have to suggest that essentially that you're saying she had it coming, and I just I just can't countenance that. All right. Well, speaking of uh, victimology and uh, criminals and victims, yeah. uh, Kevin, can you please read this for me? We need to do one of these real quick. True crime update. Laura Bricker. Yes. Even more paper has been found. <laughs> <laughs> what I've come to think of is this goddamn Stephen Avery case for making a murderer that seems to have more filings and at least with the Adnan Syed case like it's not just 800 papers of more I mean it's actually like (laughs) (laughs) but what is happening in the Stephen Avery case can you please fill us in so more news in the wake of something we talked about a few weeks ago when the Wisconsin Circuit Court decision um, when the judge denied Stephen Avery's request for a new trial So you may recall, we were just kind of hinting at this, um, his attorney Kathleen Zellner had filed a 1,200-page motion for that new trial. So she's filed another motion this week and not sit down. It's only 54 pages this time. No, so she's, she's, you know, aiming lower this time, but she's actually got more interesting things to say. So 54-page motion filed this week in, in which she claims to have new evidence that implicates another member of the family, Brandon Dassey's older brother, Bobby Dassey. So in this motion, Zellner seeks to correct what she calls uh, the court's numerous, quote, manifest errors and misinterpretation. And she submits new evidence, witness affidavits, new information that hadn't yet been filed with the court. So Bobby Dassey, um, you may remember, I think he was hanging out with the stepfather at one point in this case. So this motion alleges that new forensic testing done on the Dassey family computer Mm -hmm. recovered images of Miss Hallback, many images of violent pornography involving young females being raped and tortured, and images of injuries to females, including a decapitated head, bloodied torso, bloody head injury, and mutilated body. Good times. Um, The Dassey home where Brandon Dassey was living with his mother and stepfather and older brother Bobby is on the same property where the family's auto salvage lot and Stephen Avery's trailer is. And so according to this expert that Stephen Avery's attorney hired, the photos were accessed at times when only Bobby Dassey was home. Wait, now is Bobby, is Bobby Stephen's brother or his cousin? I'm very confused about their family relationship. So Stephen's sister 
is the mother to Brandon and Bobby. So it's Brandon's brother, right. not Stephen Avery's brother. Yeah, it's Brandon okay, Dassey's older brother, Bobby. It, yeah, it's very it, confusing. It, yeah. There's a lot of bees in this confusing. family. I'm sorry, we, we, we have to correct this because we get shit about it every time it's Brendan Dassey. Like Brendan. we get shit about this every it's single my, time. It's my talk about okay, Brendan yeah. It's okay, Laura. <laughs> So anyway, the women on the computer supposedly also are similar in appearance to Teresa Hallback, all these women that were in horribly decapitated, you know, mutilated images. So Bobby Dassey testified uh, that he had last seen Teresa heading in the direction of Avery's trailer, Stephen Avery's trailer, and did not see her or her car leave the property. But now, to make it more confusing, another brother with a B, Brian Dassey, um, Jesus. I know. <laughs> he <laughs> told the Department of Justice officials back in 2005 that Bobby told him he did see Teresa leave the property. And Brian Dassey, this third Dassey brother, has now signed a new affidavit swearing to that. So for Kathleen to actually argue that Bobby is a suspect, she has to meet Wisconsin's evidentiary threshold from a case called State v. Denny. Uh, It's the 1984 Supreme Court ruling. Under this Denny case, a defendant is required to demonstrate a legitimate tendency test in order to suggest third-party liability. So Stephen would have to show motive, opportunity, and some evidence to directly connect the third person to the crime. If those three things are not met, the defense, in this case Kathleen Zellner, in her motion cannot even suggest that someone else is responsible. There's a lot of family dynamics going on here. In that it yeah. seems like everybody's selling everybody else out for like no apparent reason. Like I don't really get, and maybe I'm, you know, I'm just being dense. But this pornography they found was that like before she was killed, or is that after? It or? doesn't say. Because that that seems like that's kind of crucial. Is it? I mean, because isn't there shit on everyone's computers that could make them look guilty of anything that you want to tie them? I'm not saying that like. Listen, I don't know. I don't know if there's a member of this family who was ultimately responsible. I don't know if it was Steven. I don't know if it was his yeah. boyfriend. All I know is that these motions have pointed fingers at pretty much everyone. Yeah, it seems like kind of <laughs> blind flailing. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin and I always joke, like, if I murder Kevin tomorrow, if Kevin shows up murdered tomorrow, seriously, you could look through the text on my phone and find shit that would, like, make me look like Kevin's killer, for sure. <laughs> and our professional Google search... History. Yes. On homicides. It just would look bad. You sent me flowers at work earlier this week, right? Yeah, because it was your birthday. Right. So what were my reaction to the flowers you sent me? What did I say about them? They were funereal. (laughs) Like, I feel like I'm at a funeral right now. These flowers are super funereal. Like, that's dark, right? So imagine if I showed up dead, right? Yeah. It would be like, why did Kevin send Rebecca funeral flowers on her birthday? Yeah. Clearly he had awful intentions. (laughs) Or your head was cut off. And buried, staring up at the stairs at your bedroom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely kind of wacky. I mean, Laura, are you just kind of getting the impression now? And I, I don't know much about Kathleen Zellner, but just I kind of wonder if maybe she's a little cuckoo. What do you think? <laughs> well, you know, no, I, I think she's. I think she's just. Um, she's done a lot of things that I've kind of been like, huh. That's interesting. I don't know lawyers that would do that with all the publicity. And she's she's really about the publicity in a way that I've never seen before. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I mean, she's just trying every possible angle. And I'm sure there's a witness somewhere that will say something that will 
go into her next 500 page motion. So, you know, stay tuned, I guess. I guess we will stay tuned. Well, on that note, I would like to move on to our marquee subject of the evening because I can't wait to talk about it. Let's talk about Mindhunter. Mindhunter is the blockbuster Netflix series about two FBI agents in the 1970s working to bring some psychology into murder investigations. It's a stylized look at the birth of what we now call profiling, something that we argue about a lot on this show and on social media. But it's also a character-driven drama focusing on agents Holden Ford, the young maverick, his crusty, flat-top partner Bill Tench, and Dr. Wendy Carr, the psychology professor turned cat lady, who inspires the FBI to turn the team's work into an actual unit. Importantly, while the main characters in the show are fictionalized versions of real people, the cases and killers that are integral to the plot are all very real and super duper creepy. Now, Mindhunter stars Jonathan Groff, an actor that looked familiar to me, but that I didn't know too much about. But as it turns out, we happen to have a friend of the show who we talked about a little bit earlier who, who knows could that be? a whole lot about Jonathan Groff. And luckily, that friend of the show sent us in a little Jonathan Groff primer. Kevin, can you hit play on that right now? Hey, crime writers, Patrick Hines here. Okay, everybody listening with two headphones, take one out. Rebecca swears you won't notice a difference. Besides, my gay squeak can be kind of shrill. Okay, so you guys are talking about Mindhunter this week, which stars my sweet, beautiful baby, Jonathan Groff, who I've never actually met, but I do imagine I'll be spending the rest of my life with. Sorry, Steve. (laughs) Daisy. So Jonathan Groff comes from the theater world. You're welcome, America. And Rebecca asked me to give you a little Broadway backstory on the guy. So, Groff Sauce, as the cool kids call him, sort of made his Broadway debut in 2005 in a musical called In My Life. The show was apparently crap and closed in two months, so it doesn't really count. Jonathan's first big gig was in the lead role of Melchior Gabor in 2006's Spring Awakening. That show was unblinkingly, spellbindingly brilliant, even groundbreaking. Disappear, yeah, well... And then, in 2015, he created this role on Broadway. You'll be back soon, you'll see. You'll remember you belong to me. Yes, that is King George in a little musical called Hamilton. He, of course, earned a Tony nomination for the role. He was amazing in it. Uh, So there you have it. Jonathan Groff is one of our great Broadway stars. Go make your TV money, Graf Sauce. But remember, I'm your man. You guys, can I be called Broadway Siri now? Rebecca, girl, call me. Oh, big, big thanks to Patrick Hines for that Broadway backstory. And of course, Oceans Rise, Empires Fall. Jonathan Groff is also someone that I recognize from Glee, where he played uh, Rachel's bad guy. Jesse St. James. Love interest for a while. Now, Laura Bricker, are you surprised to hear that the uh, lead in Mindhunter has all of these Broadway creds in his background? Yes. Um, I I (laughs) had no idea. So clearly I need to listen to Patrick's podcast more because I had no idea. It would be weirder if the guy who plays Ed Kemper was uh, in Broadway. That would be weird, but you actually, like, we uncovered some, like, weird uh, factoids about... Not about the actor, but about The real-life Ed Kemper, yeah. Kemper, yeah. Okay, so, honest to God, this just came out on, was it Shaker.com? Or, one, one of the, like, a, a major website dug this up, that while he was incarcerated, Ed Kemper took part in a program that recorded... 
newspaper and magazine articles and books for the blind and visually impaired. Mm-hmm. And this is a this is actually a big program nationally, and there's a lot of funding that goes on for this. And these are like really desirable gigs for like professional voiceover people because it's it's steady work. But it's basically people who will read the paper or a book. And then during the seventies, this was the way that people would get stuff. And he was one of them. And he did like thousands of hours of reading. 1970s novels. Yeah, he was an audiobook. At Time uh, Magazine. Yeah, like narrator, right? Yeah, he basically, yeah, before you can go to the store and get uh, audiobooks, like, this was one way that people could get them. Uh, now, his performances are nothing compared to the great performances you'll find on every audiobook selection from Audible. <laughs> <laughs> Audible. I know, I went there. You did go there. Oh, I went what? there. <laughs> Audible has an unmatched... Wait, this is a real Audible ad. This right? is a real Audible ad. <laughs> oh! Has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from leading publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers. Wow. Like right now at Audible, somebody just got up from a desk and started running down a hallway <laughs> and is calling for a meeting. And they're like, what the f*** happened on Crime Writers On? We used to be their favorite advertiser. We were their first advertiser. They give dozens and dozens of recommendations, and now they're setting the bar so low. It's like you could listen to one of these fantastic award-winning novels with award-winning narrative performances by voice actors and professional audiobook readers, or... You could get something from a convict reading flowers in the attic on an old cassette tape. It's like you could read something from a statesman right, reading his biography or her memoirs. Or you could listen to the neck f***er. <laughs> read Wifey by Judy Bloom. But we really owe Audible an awful lot, first of all, because... That's something we don't talk about as much as we should. Yeah, the books are great, but it's the audio performances that are killer and that really make it intriguing. Rebecca, you have had, uh, in one ear anyway, an earbud, (laughs) and you have been binging on something. Tell me what it is and who's been reading it. Well, I have been, as you know, listening to like three books a week on Audible for the last several months. I am completely addicted to Audible. I just listened to a phenomenal book read by a phenomenal reader this week. It's called The Sea Detective by Mark Douglas Holm. It is a three-layered mystery. I loved everything about it. It takes place in Scotland, so of course the accents and the characters and the portrayals are very important, and the reader in that book is David Monteith and bravo David Monteith for not being a serial killer reading Flowers in the Attic. You did a wonderful job (laughs) with this fantastic book and I cannot recommend it highly enough and that is The Sea Detective by Mark Douglas Holm. Toby, tell me about a great audiobook and the great narrator who read it to you. I think I recommended this like probably a couple years ago but uh, one of my favorite books is The Financial Lives of the Poets by Jess Walter and uh, he actually reads the audiobook as well, and he is, he's really good. And Laura Bricker, what great audiobook did someone read to you? Low Country Boil, a Liz Talbot mystery. It's um, written by Susan Boyer, and the narrator is Loretta Rollins. Liz Talbot is a modern Southern belle. She blesses hearts and takes names. She carries her Sig 9 and her Kate Spade handbag and her Golden Retriever <laughs> Rhett ride shotgun in her hybrid escape. 
So this is a fun, this is really just a fun book, and I love it. It takes place on a South Carolina island. Um, Liz goes back when her grandmother mysteriously falls down the stairs and dies, and um, there's there's a little bit of everything in this book, but it's definitely got great humor and um, just a really fun mystery in a really fun setting. And I'm going to recommend Mindhunter by John Douglas. <laughs> And Mark Allshaker. And it's narrated by Richard M. Davidson. And it's really great because he does a good job. I mean, there's not a lot of, like, special voices that you need to make. But he's very compelling. And that's what you like when you get a... The narrators are the real heroes here is what we're hearing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an unbeatable selection of audiobooks at Audible with incredible performances. You get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash crime... Please remind them in the first place why they like Crime Writers On, because our audience is awesome. <laughs> and you will, will say, yes, stick around by going to audible.com slash crime for a free audiobook with your 30-day trial. What else you got, Kevin? Most of us don't like go and maybe check for a job every day, except maybe after you read an ad like that. <laughs> <laughs> but look, you know, the place to go when you're hunting for people and you're searching for new talent should be the place where 70% of the U.S. workforce is. Wow, where's that? LinkedIn. I thought you were going to say Dunkin' Donuts. LinkedIn <laughs> is where everybody is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, you already know LinkedIn is the world's largest professional network. Well, it's also a better way to find great talent. Just ask any of the hundreds of thousands of businesses who have posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year. 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week. And because LinkedIn considers skills, experience, location, and much more to match and promote your job that you're looking to fill to potential candidates, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. So you're you're a business owner, you're a manager, you've got that available position. Don't think about the other guys, hit and miss. Mm -hmm. LinkedIn, it's so obvious. I get every good recruitment email I ever get is from LinkedIn. I'm completely completely honest right now, from real people who work in my field who are like, hey, Rebecca, are you looking? They're all from LinkedIn. Yeah, a business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. So don't settle for posting or hoping the right person will find your role and apply, go to LinkedIn.com slash crime. Crime. And get a fifty dollar credit. Our own LinkedIn URL. I know, is that crazy? <laughs> there you'll get fifty dollars towards your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash crime for your fifty dollar credit today. Terms and conditions apply. All right, can we get back to talking about Mindhunter now? I'd love to. All right, so we were talking about Ed Kemper before. Did I mention he fucked a neck? <laughs> you oh, did. Okay. God. You did. And he was very comfortable doing that. And that is one area in which this show, I think, is a little bit different from other dramatized versions of these stories that we've watched, is that there is this integration of real crimes and real stories and real people with the fictionalized version. Now, before we talk about the style and that part of the show. I just want to play a little piece of tape for you. And this is something that I found on the web. It's gotten a bunch of views. I saw it on Reddit. And it is a side-by-side comparison of Ed Kemper as played by Cameron Britton versus the real Ed Kemper in his first interviews with the original FBI pre-profilers. Go ahead and play that tape, Kevin. Do you know uh, Joseph Wambaugh? Police story? You ever watch that? Huge fan. Oh. I got a lot of my insights right there. Really? Joseph Wambaugh. Police story. Got some tremendous insights into not just 
the gimmicks, the actual things, the tidbits that you would pick up from their procedures. But the mechanics behind that, the logic behind it, was I would not allow myself to walk into even a potential trap. I would not allow myself to walk into a trap because I knew exactly how their minds work from watching Wamba. And one of those was talking about those crimes too much. You have to remain casual. It would be a guess, but I'd say right now, far more than 35. In North America, more than 35. 35? Well, I'm not an expert. Well, hold on, I'm not an expert. I'm not, not an authority. authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. I'm just an extremely accomplished murderer. All right, it's a great place to start. I think it's a great thing that illustrates what it is about this series that sets it apart. Toby, what did you think about those scenes where the fictional FBI agents were going to interview these real-life serial killers? What do you think of the Kemper scenes? I thought they were really effective. The actor, who's sort of big physically, he's just this sort of combination of he's friendly, he's sort of garrulous, I guess, but then he's also, there's like, this menace behind it. And plus, you know Mm -hmm. that he's a serial killer. I thought that those scenes had like a great tension and you could also see why, you know, the two FBI agents get a little bit charmed by him or uh, Mm -hmm. despite themselves. I I suspect that we've had hundreds of shitty serial killer detective (laughs) novels basically because of him. (laughs) So I thought those scenes were great. Well, I do want to just take a step back and talk about the overall style of the show. David Fincher, one of my favorite film directors and now TV directors, because he was behind the first uh, episodes of House of Cards as well, is the kind of uh, directorial and style mastermind behind this show. People have asked me to describe it, and I say it is Mad Men and Seven had a baby, and that's kind of what <laughs> what the show is about, and add in like a dose of buddy movie, right? Mm-hmm. Kevin, what do you think of the style and setting of the show? It takes place in the 70s, which I'm not sure translates all the time exactly as being like a time, but it certainly has a look and a feel and a style. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think uh, Fincher does a great job of bringing his cinematic eye and thinking I'm, I'm going to visually have a purpose and, and something that's distinctive about this. It has a very blue hue to it. There's a lot of blue light. That's Fincher. Everything he yeah. does is blue and gray. That's kind of his go-to color palette and filter. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be. And I think it, and it reminds me of snapshots from the 70s. Uh, and I don't know if that's the way they fade, but that's how I kind of remember them. I thought that this was great because I also like origin stories. Yep. And in a way, this reminded me of Masters of Sex mm, on yep. Showtime. That's a really good comparison. Because um, the, the early seasons of Masters yeah, the of early, Sex. Yeah, the early seasons, because in both cases, there is a, a common knowledge that the general public has about these kinds of sciences, mm-hmm. human sexuality serial killers that these characters do not have Mm -hmm. and so that we get to see them exploring and missing what we know is the right way to go and being amazed by what is now sort of a common knowledge to us I mean they weren't even using the term serial killer I think until like the the last episode or the second to last episode you know as somebody who writes nonfiction I'm really drawn to nonfiction and of course I'll also say Mindhunter is one of my top two favorite um, nonfiction books right 
Which I will say, mm-hmm. I was not looking forward to watching this show because mm-hmm. you always point to Mind Hunter when we talk about profilers in the podcast. And you know, I think profiling is like a lot of bullshit. Um, so, like, I'm always like, oh, rolling my eyes. But how does this compare to the book? Is this like what the book is like? Well, it it, it takes it draws upon the knowledge. If you've seen this and you open Mind Hunter or listen to it on Audible, you might wonder, like, <laughs> well, where, where's where's the comparison? When John Douglas talks about going to sit down with Ed Kemper or with uh, David Berkowitz. Right. Uh, or, you know, the son, some of the, Sam son of Sam. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't wait till they get to that. Right. If they do. I, this is the thing I remember is, like, Berkowitz starts off with the, you know, well, the dog told me. And their play was to say, hey, cut it with the bullshit with the dog. <laughs> and he said, okay. Right, and that's like you know the whole thing. Say I did it because the dog did it. He just told him cut the shit out, and then he told him the the rest of like his his you know pathology. And they start putting this stuff together. So I mean that stuff you'll see the dramatized story is different, but it's done so so well. Right, especially compared to the the Unabomber one where they embellished <laughs> a lot of bullshit right. with the, with the real stuff that was actually really interesting. Right, the stuff that they've added the to it, the fictionalized stuff, the is fictionalized so good. Yeah, is, yeah, is a. Well, I, I want to talk about that, Laura. Now, I when I first started the first episode of the show, and I think we talked about this a little bit, mm-hmm. I don't think the first episode of the show is representative of what the show is really yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. All of sort of the classic dumb tropes are there. The young, enthusiastic, um, young FBI agent, like the crusty, worldly one who's like, ah, oh, kid, I can show you things. You know, the boss who's sort of like, putting them down and marginalizing them. The doctor, the, the beautiful feminine doctor shows up. You think it's just going to go a certain way. Yeah. You mean the X-Files? But then these characters, <laughs> exactly. But then these characters evolve so much. Now, we have gotten a lot of question ideas and ideas about this conversation from our Facebook group. And Ashley asks, and Laura, I want to ask pose this question to you. Okay. What are your thoughts and feelings from the initial episodes through the continuation of the show and the evolution of these characters? Were you as surprised as I was by that? Yeah. And I'll say, you know, the first five minutes of this show, and I didn't realize how graphic everything was going to be, but they have this completely unrealistic scene where this guy's head gets like blown off like something on a video game. And I'm like, oh, my God, are you freaking kidding me? Like, is this for real? Like when they're having this negotiation and I'm th- I was not expecting much after that part. You know, I binged it so quickly in two days. It's hard to know, you know, looking back where one episode ended and the next began and because I just kept watching it and watching it. Um, but I think around episode three or four, it just really started to pick up momentum as the characters themselves, I feel like really started to become a lot more complex. And there's that, you know, there, there was a lot more going on, you know, interpersonally between them at that point point. Holden's character was, I felt like, you know, really starting to evolve. And we were, you know, I think getting more drawn into their quest to, you know, do something with the research that they were trying to get started and see it go somewhere and see it through. But it it just, you know, started off that first episode, I felt I was like, here we go again. Um, But you know, (laughs) it, it gained momentum. And it was it was realistic in terms of how 
these characters were drawn into this world with these people in jail that they were interviewing and with mm-hmm. these cases that they were investigating. And, 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 you know, and I can, I can relate to that, you know, and I've talked about this going into jail and interviewing people who are accused of horrible crimes. Sometimes they're very charming and, and it is hard mm. to connect the person that committed the crime with the person that you're sitting in front of. So I, I definitely, um, felt drawn to that part of the show. Now, Toby, what did you think of the evolution of these characters? You know, in particular, I think that the most stereotypical setup, like the young, you know, naive agent and the crusty one, Bill Tench. Did you enjoy that evolution? I mean, I, I, I think that some of our listeners and maybe I guessed that you might be the naysayer on this show. And I'd love to know what you think about how those characters were written and how that played out through the series. Yeah, I guess I'm not really anti. You know, I guess my my, my feeling is that the that Holden, the the younger of the two FBI agents, I guess it's a matter of him like sort of gaining confidence in himself and starting to feel like like he has both sort of knowledge and legitimate insight and they do a good job of sort of developing that slowly through these sort of side cases that they get involved in. Side question, what do you think of the inclusion of the side cases? Would that, would that work for you, like as a narrative? Yeah, I thought it was good, actually. I think it was a smart choice. I think if it was just like a nonstop, like meeting with serial killers, like fighting with the bureaucracy, meeting with serial killers, fighting with the bureaucracy, I don't think you can sustain that over you know, 10 hours or however long yeah. it was. So yeah. I thought that, I thought that was good. And I thought for the most part, they sort of illuminated aspects of the research they were doing. I mean, they, they were picked, you know, pretty specifically to sort of track along with their sort of developing understanding of sort of the psychology, I guess, that's involved. So, you know, at the end, and, I, you know, maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler, but he kind of goes from like, five on the confidence scale to 12 in like <laughs> like five minutes you know it's yeah. just like he goes from being this one guy to being this completely different guy for like the last you know half hour of the series there, there were a few sort of scattered among along the way there were a few kind of false notes i thought and that was kind of one of them but it's really again it, it's sort of nitpicking at what was in general, I think, you know, really well done. What I really loved about the development of the series, you know, aside from just like the expectations not just being completely different from what the outcome ended up being, I loved the buddy dynamic between Bill and Holden that developed, and Wendy also that developed. It was almost like... I thought the side cases, those little stories they did that were the one-offs, did a few things. It helped advance sort of testing the knowledge they were gathering. But it also showed, it, it without telling, that these guys were both, like, really good investigators who deserved to be in the FBI. Like, the first mm-hmm. one they do, yeah. they just go to that little town, and this case has been confounding these small-town cops, and they just, like, boom, solve it, right? Like... They just they just are able to. They figure it out like right away. But there's some it, trial and error there. there yeah. There's some, but it, it shows that they know what they're doing. And we know that they're on the right path. We know they're on the right path, yeah. but also even before they start learning all of these things, yeah. we know like, okay, these are they're smart. Yeah. And I think to me, the Holden character is very interesting. I think the scene with the when he first meets his girlfriend Debbie in the first episode is a controversial scene. You loved the dialogue. I was like, this is friggin' weird. Um I did love the dialogue. Yes. In, in the rec- first scene? At no, the bar? with the bar. I thought you said you loved it. No? No, what I loved about it is when... I thought that the... Di- yeah, that was all a little forced. It was that very first strange. Epi- the first episode 
was a little forced. And I'm glad we didn't do two episodes and then let's go thumbs up or thumbs down. Right. I, I thought that, yeah, it was like all of a sudden very much, oh, she's coming on really strong but as a character. doesn't it make sense later when you it really does. Back, if you were to watch the first episode after watching all the episodes, like, it makes sense. The thing I loved was the scene when they went with the band. Yeah. Where, instead of doing the thing where they lower the music so you can hear what they're saying, they just leave it going and then they put in the- Scream. They, well, they, they, yeah, they subtitle it, but they also pace it so the top subtitles come up with their dialogue mm-hmm. in a way that accentuates what they're actually saying. I thought it was super clever. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we talk about the Debbie thing in a minute? Because we have a lot of questions about that. Let me finish what I was saying about Bill Tench. Okay. Bill Tench, to me, is the most interesting character in this show. Holden's partner. Holden might be sort of the protagonist that we're following, seeing the doing the most testing, the most growing, the most overstepping. You know, mm-hmm. Bill starts as the crusty naysayer scully character right Mm -hmm. and turns into the one that is kind of like the heart and soul of the team he has i think a tremendous amount of morality what he's struggling with in his personal life is relatable Mm -hmm. and sad and it's more relatable and sad because you know there's no understanding of it in the era in which this is taking place that Mm -hmm. there would be today Talking and about his adopted son. Yeah. His adopted son, yeah. who to the modern viewer clearly has, is on the spectrum and has mm-hmm. autism, yeah. and that is just not even in the vocabulary. Yeah. And also, if you know that where the research is going to take them has a lot to do with family life, exactly, and the influence of parents on serial killers, and also some and of what the he may think of that later. Like there's yeah. a sort of a sense of dread built into that and mm-hmm. sadness. But don't you think? Wait, Kevin- not, not, I'm not saying that like. The kid who has autism. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm saying that he will probably mistake that. He could. For, yeah, or he, because, he'll be worried about where that, right? we know yeah. as pop culture consumers, it's going. Yeah, yeah, no. I, uh, for Kevin, our, how our much do you it. think that that disconnect between what we know and what we know the characters don't know helps with this show? It's, it's just like suspense in any other movie, you know, or, or, or TV show. But the suspense is, for us, the, it, it isn't that there's a fuse going you know, to a bomb and that the characters aren't aware of it, but we are. There's a figurative one, which is we understand like what all of these different pieces mean and how they fit together and they can't see it yet. Yeah. So I think that that does, again, it's the whole idea of the origin story and why we like it as a procedural. And that term gets thrown around a lot for cop shows that it's a procedural, but this is really about, it's about the procedure about going through and and learning the knowledge. This isn't a buddy movie. But it's also a character-driven movie. Yeah. And now Jenny asks, now Toby, I'm going to come to you first for this, but I want you all to weigh in on this briefly. Does it do justice when portraying the effect of working so closely to these types of crimes on someone's personal life? So basically what Jenny wants to know, I think, um, and a couple other people weighed in on this too, was like, what do we think of the fact that there is so much home life, personal life, personal story stuff in the show, does it work? Toby, what do you think? I, I think this was not one of the strongest aspects, quite honestly. I thought that the, what's Holden's girlfriend's name? Debbie. Debbie. She seemed to mostly function as a way of getting some like psychological concepts out there through their, their conversations. I think there's a lot of sort of old-fashioned versus like modern stuff that goes on. And I think she's supposed to represent sort of modern pull. You know, I, I didn't find their, their relationship particularly compelling. And then I thought the whole thing, like the last sex scene, and he starts getting all weirded out about her shoes. 
I wouldn't be able to look at high heel shoes the same way either. I, <laughs> I don't say. know. I just I thought that, I thought that was just kind of I th- I thought that was kind of cheap. Laura, what do you think about the way the personalized of the characters are portrayed on the show? Which, by the way, was we've talked about many times, is not typical of things that are about investigators and crime. At least not typical done well, yeah. as you pointed out with the uh, Unabomber yeah. series. What do you think, Laura? Yeah, no, I. you know, the thing that I felt like when I was watching, you know, their home life and in the personal life and the personal relationships, I felt like I was seeing a lot of like, I felt like stereotypes about cops. Like I'm like, oh, the wife who isn't clued into what's going on and oh, they're drinking all the time. It seemed like every time they were doing anything, they were drinking and smoking and there was tension. And so I felt like it it was, I wanted to have the personal life there, but I felt like I was seeing a lot of what I would kind of think of as like the stereotypical cop relationship issues not done particularly deeply in terms of the way that they were presented. Now, we did get some um, Debbie, Julia, Melissa all sent comments with similar themes uh, about the female characters in the show that they felt disappointed in the writing of the women in the show. Smart, sassy, but ultimately pointless. Girlfriend as plot device. Single career woman who is unlikable. Uh, becomes the lonely cat lady. Uh, Bill Tench's poor, like, suffering wife. And then a couple questions about Debbie in particular. You know, do we love her or hate her? A lot of people are like, she's flat, she's this, she's that. And then other people are like, she's smart, so therefore she has to be a bitch. Like, what do you think of that? I actually, and and Kevin and I talked about this while watching the show, I loved Debbie as a character. I loved the Debbie Holden relationship. I felt like I got it. I felt like she's so bright that she sees something in him that he doesn't necessarily see in himself and that she's kind of awesome and super liberated and very accepting. And he totally fucks it up. And I found myself being like really pissed at him for kind of turning into the guy who like, fucked up this awesome thing that he had going on. Kevin, how do you think about how the, the women characters were written and the whole personal life in the background there? I thought that Debbie uh, was written, well, I mean, it, she seemed like a very aggressive character in a way that didn't ring true. Why, because she's a me. woman? You can't be aggressive no, and be a woman? No, you put me in a bad <laughs> spot. I, I don't know how to articulate this, but I would say, whilst a lot of the other characters did sort of have like a, a bit of truth, and I think that she had a lot of spunk, and, and I think, right, she was there to play Holden's foil, somebody that he could bounce the, the ideas off of, and someone that would allow him to grow. A lot of exposition was happening. She's in those a, right, yeah. right, but she's a supporting character. A lot of exposition, the main dump. character, right? She's a lot of exposition <laughs> dump, a lot of like showing, you know, the temperature check on Holden is here. Okay, here's the baseline. Here's Debbie, and he's way below, and now he's way above, and eventually, yeah, he. Holden becomes filled with his own hubris. And that's like with any other hero, that's what leads to his downfall. It ruins his relationship. It ruins his health. It ruins his career. That's how you wind up with Ed Kemper about to give you a hug. I thought you were about to go into an ad just then. I thought we were going to have like a Coldies ad. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, I would just say that, that an issue I had with Debbie is that she, she seems to exist in large part to either explain or move various parts of the plot along. It seems like she's more sort of useful in the story than she is a real person was, was mm. my kind of feeling in that I, I thought there were certain themes that she played into. And then I also thought, how are you going to get in, uh, you know, some of these psychological concepts in that are, you know, useful to know as, as you're moving through this and how is it? Well, it's like, 
that's like their small talk is they, is mm. they talk about that stuff. I, I thought the whole, I thought the, the attitude towards women in general in, in the show is, is pretty negative. You know, I don't think it's like misogynistic or anything, but no, I think it's just part of the theme of the show though. Right. Yeah. Because isn't like a big part of what they're discovering when they discover about these potential serial killers is about their relationship with their mothers and with mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. And don't you feel like that is pl- that's what we're seeing playing out in some of these interpersonal stories? Like we're, t- we're that we're seeing them play with those themes in a domestic setting. Yeah. That that's what I but, thought but the writers that, were doing. Like I, I guess one of the questions I had is: Is it really accurate that all these serial killers? It's their moms. Like they had these moms hmm. who aren't very pleasant. Well, these are uh, real. Serial pretty accurate, ki- actually. Yeah. Yeah. Th- th- these are real serial killers. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that is that is one of the theories around profiling that is controversial, but. A lot of serial killers do have fractured relationships with their moms and or women and or are adopted, which isn't something that they talked about this season. But I know they're going to, which is why they have Tench's son being adopted. Right, Kevin? Could be. I just have one question. I have one question. Go ahead. Anybody else? I'm waiting every time Wendy goes in the basement to feed. I was just about to ask you that question. (laughs) Dr. Wendy Carr, this super intriguing character, kind of icy, super cool lesbian mm-hmm. spoiler alert but yeah. <laughs> that comes out pretty early she has becomes the leader of this group who isn't playing by the fbi's rules because she doesn't come from the world of law enforcement she comes from an academic setting mm-hmm. so she's the one who'll be talking about it at a cocktail party and by the way now that means their funding is in trouble or whatever she has this little side story on her domestic suspense where she hears a cat meowing in the laundry room and then is now leaving cans of tuna out for the cat. Uh. Laura Bricker, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? Um, I think there's like a serial killer hiding outside the window in that basement because, well, I mean, at first I thought this woman is just so lonely and I think it shows you how lonely she is in her personal life, um, regardless of how accomplished she is in her professional life and how she's leading this project. And, and then you see the sad, depressing basement with these laundry machines and, and, you know, her only source of reaching out for some sort of connection is with a cat that she never even sees, um, <laughs> which is really a hand that's going to reach through and kill her in season two, I think. But I, I think, <laughs> you know, and I, I just every time she would, I'm like, oh, person's going to kill her this time. You know, I think in terms of the personal life, like, yes, I think Tension Holden's personal life was not very well played out. I think hers, I felt, was a little bit more, it was sad, but I think it was a little bit more realistic and a little more relatable in that you could really sense that this woman outside of work was very lonely. And I think that that cat scene just made it apparently clear that that's what was going on with her. I was told that one should not let authorial intent ruin a good symbol. Yep. And uh, I understand from doing some reading. The Anna Torv, the actress. Yeah. She had a theory about what the cat was and she went, approached David Fincher with it and her theory was a little bit more A little more oblique. Fincher said, yeah, we want people to think that maybe there's a serial killer. Okay. (laughs) Which is what I thought. So that's what it is. Yep. Yeah. Which is like, oh, wouldn't that be coincidental? Um, (laughs) However, you know, what I like to see in that scene is, this is what it's symbolic to me, that Dr. Carr is searching for something, (laughs) is hunting something, and thinks that this is the easy way of doing it. Tuna can. Tuna can out there. She pulls it back. It's all filled with maggots. What she doesn't want to see or is unaware of is how dirty and how messy 
doing that hunting actually is in right. real life. Oh, see, that's actually, I think, a little bit more high level. But I think David Fincher just wants to think there might be a little kid in the building. Fincher should have taken cats. my thing. He would have <laughs> sounded so much smarter. Toby, what were you going to say? You know, these apartment apartment building laundry rooms are... Uh, Creepy as fuck. Yeah. Like, I remember, like, I remember reading uh, when I lived in D.C., I was reading uh, In Cold Blood and, like, doing laundry at, late at night. And it's like, this is... Like, Hanging out with no pants? Yeah, I, I would go down there with just a shirt on. That was another thing. I was like, is somebody going to walk in and be like, why are you not dressed? Where, by the way, did you get the men's shirt, too? Another mystery, right? Dun, dun, dun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially given the reveal. All How right. about that uh, stripe in her uh, apartment? You know what? <laughs> I love that. You know on the wall. Funny? Do you know what's funny about that? You look at that set detail, right? Yeah. And we actually had somebody comment on that on the Facebook saying, like, what was up with that? If you Google 70s apartment, mm-hmm. you will see that same fucking stupid stripe. That was such a popular design. That was Mary Tyler Moore as fuck. That was super. It was a, a too close for comfort. Remember, <laughs> they had the stripes on their apartment wall. Oh, that was a yeah. very typical, like, 1970s, like, Mork and Mindy apartment, like, decor. The apartment was decorated. Like, the set design in that apartment was... Perfect. As, by the way, our Anna Tor's uh, clothing for this mm-hmm. show. I think that the men are dressed a little too 50s, 60s, but she looks perfect 70s. Now, we talked briefly about- oh, if you were about, in your 50s yeah. in the 1970s, yeah. you would still dress like you did when you you're were in, in the, the 50s. You're probably, you're probably right. right. I th- I and thought, you probably have the same like, um, I attitudes. I thought the clothes were right on. You probably yeah. have the same conservative attitudes. Toby pointed out a weakness to me about like the conservative attitudes, about his using language during interviews, mm-hmm. but that's probably also because those guys also came of age in the 50s. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about another thread you know we talked about the one-off cases in the story mm-hmm. contrasting with that we see a long story thread that doesn't develop it develops but it doesn't come to resolution in this series about the btk killer we know that who is that <clears throat> we know that in modern day that that's who it is this is the adt repairman alarm company guy who's it's featured in the cold open in most of the episodes super anal retentive yeah. gets mad when someone asks for a new roll of electrical tape without returning the spool and we see him collecting serial killer equipment throughout the season and we know as modern viewers that this is a longer term storyline and all you have to do is google it quickly with the name of that city to know who this killer is what city overland park kansas well it comes up like giant overland park kansas (laughs) wait 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 i love the titles quick lightning round question giant titles yay or nay lara yay or nay yay toby a uh, huge yay. <laughs> Kevin? Yay. And you yelled them every time. I would yell them out every time. <laughs> Topeka, it was actually, Kansas! It was kind of like a like a, a throwback to a 70s film, like they would probably do something yeah, like that. Huge, huge yeah, huge, huge yay that was a great. That was a great touch. Yeah. So this long thread that we yeah. see kind of unfolding but doesn't come to conclusion. Kevin, what do you think of that? Did it work in the series? It did. I was very intrigued and thinking like, oh, we're going to eventually get to the case at the end of the series, and we don't. It's not unsatisfying that we don't, but it's it, again, it, it's so funny because you see him... In this first, you know, one of these, you know, one of the first times, you know, at work and the guy wants the electrical tape. You're thinking today, that guy's a serial killer. <laughs> right? Just because of what we know. It right. reminded me of the, the pilot of I've Mad Men. I've worked with people like that, haven't you? Where you're like, yeah, this, this yeah. person's definitely he's a serial killer. He's definitely a serial killer, right? He just, he's, he's got the look. He, he's got everything. He's definitely a serial killer. But you wouldn't have known that then. It reminded me of the first episode of Mad Men where I think it's is Sal, the um, mm-hmm. the art director, who's gay. Mm-hmm. And, he can, and he sits with the guys and he's like, oh, you just won't believe the women that I had last night. And is so openly flamboyant. It's played that way. Yeah, you're, the gaydar is so 
obvious to us yes. today, and and nobody picks up on it in the time. And it just reminded me of that, like, oh yeah, for what we know now, my serial killer radar is going. That guy's a fucking serial killer, <laughs> and we're just saying, oh, he's just an asshole. I got my electrical tape, so Toby, I, I thought it was great. Toby, what do you think about the ADT guy and him being the BTK killer? Do you think that plays well? Uh, as long as there's a season two. <laughs> there, and is. there is, yeah. There is. Oh, there is? Okay. Well, then, yes. He killed for 30 years. It might be season 30 before we get to him. I want to do something that we don't typically do um, with these conversations, but we got so many questions. I want to do a little bit of a lightning round before we get to our reviews. Okay. Are each of you guys up to answer a couple of lightning round questions about wow. Mindhunter and your thoughts? Not really. Like one word or I'm one ready. sentence? No, okay. you don't have to do one word or one sentence. You can That's just, lightning. Just, Zing. You no. Know, lightning is just means I'm going to throw questions quickly and you're going to answer them quickly. So, Laura, okay. first one's for you. All right. Thoughts on this Netflix style of killing us all with cliffhangers that we have to wait another year to pick back up? Laura, what are your thoughts? It drives me fucking nuts. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I mean, I waited the same thing for what was the one in the Florida Keys that I was so obsessed with? Um, Bloodline. Bloodline. Bloodline, And it was the same thing. And I'm like, ah. So, I mean, it's great that you can binge a whole series in like two days like I did. But then you have to wait a year. So then you're screwed. Yeah. yeah. So that's frustrating. That was actually from Tanya who asked that question. Kevin Nanita, friend of the show, asks, do you also immediately think X-Files when they are immediately relegated to the basement? Uh, yes. I, but more so when they were like waiting to get called in. I kept thinking, Director Skinner will see you now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Toby. Um, what others is from Michael. What other serial killers do you want to see Holden and Bill interview on the show? I'm not a serial killer connoisseur, but I assume like Berkowitz and yeah. uh, I don't know Wayne Williams maybe. I think Gacy would be a fun one for oh, them. Gacy. I don't know if, I don't know if the time they, period, but yeah, yeah. There, there's a crazy uh, New Yorker article from like 1994 or something where one of the New Yorker uh, reporters interviews Gacy, and it's it's both Ugh. about him and about like what it's like to like be in the room and, and, and how mm. he kind mm. of experienced being in a room with this guy. I will say one of my all-time favorite true crime media products is To Catch a Killer, the 1980s show that came out about John Wayne Gacy with Brian Dennehy playing John Wayne Casey. That movie, I think it was like a movie of the week, mm-hmm. Creepy AF. <laughs> Totally worth a watch and a lot of stuff about how Procedure was born in that movie as well. So, Kevin, to you, um, what do you think of the pretty graphic sex scenes with Holden and Debbie? Uh, there's no peen, but there are buns and boobs. <laughs> this is from Christy, by the way. That's not me talking. Yeah. Was it gratuitous? Necessary? What do you think? Uh, Christy, I wanted more of that. No, was it? <laughs> I don't know. It was shows, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think it was probably uh, appropriate for 2017 TV watching. But I, but also, I would say, as Toby pointed out, that last sex scene served a dramatic purpose. Mm-hmm. And you could almost say that their sex scenes going from their sex life going from very timid and I'm holding and I don't know what to do and going to do you want it to the left to the right all the way to this isn't you. No, shows, she was shows no. a growth in it. So I think it serves a purpose. To me, the purpose it serves is her saying she's bored with the relationship, so she's trying something that too. new. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to that me, too. That's there what it serves. Yeah. Uh, question for me from Michelle: Is anyone else feeling like Bill steals the show? Yes, I do think that Bill Tench steals the show. Uh, Toby Ball. Uh, this is from Allison. David Fincher seems obsessed with crime. Is David Fincher, in fact, a serial killer? <laughs> and what is obsession? What is his obsession with the 1970s? What do you think, Toby Ball? I actually, I don't think he's a serial killer. 
Our lawyer thanks you for that, by the <laughs> That's way. Right. I, I realize that might be a controversial statement. Okay, so uh, Laura, this is from Emma, yeah. and she says she's asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> Did Payne Lindsay have a hand in setting up the FBI's profiling unit as a child crime-fighting prodigy? What do you think, Laura? <laughs> you know, nothing would shock me anymore. I mean, that could be a podcast coming out soon. I don't know. All right. So speaking of you know previous conversations in the show, this is actually a quick lightning round question like that 25, I 30 years exactly. later. I know. He was a psycho. This is a lightning round question that I want us all to weigh in on all quickly. Right. Um, does this show Mind Hunter make you see profiling in a different light? This is from Kelly. It's definitely a different view than media has shown in the past. And I love that they are bumbling through it all. Laura, what do you think? Yes, um, I I did like the fact that you see the old guard that was like, they're guilty, we're going to nuke them. And I liked the fact that, you know, when we see the early days of profiling, we see people who actually want to understand why people are committing these murders that they're committing. What do you think, Toby? Do you see profiling in a new light, given uh, what we everything we saw in the series? No, not really. I mean, I, I think it... <laughs> I think it was interesting. Uh, I thought like one of the the great moments was when uh, Holden is kind of like all jacked up because he got that guy to confess. And then uh, Tetch is like, it's like this thing was solved with good old fashioned police work. You know, we tracked this guy down. (laughs) The tree trimmer guy. (laughs) Yeah. And then it's like, well, yeah, actually, like they found the guy. He just like sort of manipulated him into like confessing. But like the actual police work was done by somebody else. Yeah, I actually 100% agree with you. One of the things I love the most about this show is it actually confirms not calls into question a lot of my thinking about profilers by showing how much of it is them just making shit up, sitting at a table, deciding upon categories, deciding upon names to use, deciding upon techniques to use, and bumbling through the process. And then all the crimes they actually solve are the crimes they solve because they're actually good at investigating crimes and talking to people and finding evidence. So it doesn't make me feel differently about them. And one of the things I love about the show is that it does not try to make me feel differently about them. Kevin, what about you before we do our reviews? And it just change your feelings about profilers at all. Uh, no, no, didn't change my feelings at all. But, you know, if I wanted to change my hair color, I would probably go get Madison Reed. <laughs> it, it's a company that is revolutionizing the way women color their hair. You know where Madison Reed gets its name? Uh, from a name it's, generator? No, not name generator. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Amy Everett is the founder and Madison Reed is her daughter. Oh, sweet. So before Madison Reed came along, the company, not the uh, the daughter, <laughs> you had two options. You could either use the outdated home hair color system or you could spend a lot of time and money at a salon. So they created Madison Reed because they believe that women deserve better than the status quo. So you can get now the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door and on your schedule for under $25. Wow. Rebecca, I don't see any grays on you. It's Why like that Madison Reed. And I've been coloring with it, and my hair feels fantastic. And you know that because sometimes I let you touch it. Let me touch it. <laughs> don't, don't, stop it. I want to touch That's it. That's what a serial killer would do. I was going to say, this sounds sort of creepy. If I take a little clip and save it. <laughs> All right, go ahead, That Kevin. would be like a serial killer. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and loved Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison Reed. 
R-E-E-D.com. Madison Reed would like to honor Crime Writers on listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on the first color kit with promo code WRITERS. That's madison-reed.com and use the promo code WRITERS to get 10% off and free shipping on the first color kit. All right. What else you got, Kevin? Well, I want to drink wines like a millionaire, don't you? <laughs> I'm drinking wines like a millionaire right now. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I, I want to too, but I don't have a lot of money to spend on like super expensive Napa Cabernet, which is why I can buy my best wine from Cameron Hughes Wine. Cameron Hughes. I think I'm drinking that right now. Yes, Cameron Hughes Wine is where you can find fantastic quality wine at everyday prices like a $50 bottle of wine for $15. Wow. I actually talked to Mr. Cameron Hughes. That's a real person? It's a real person. What? <laughs> it's not like from a name generator? It's not a real person. Wow. No, no, again, another it's real it's name. It's like somebody's kid's name. It's a real person. No, it's a real Cam, person. Cam's been doing this for a really long time. Wow. And people, if you remember watching that documentary, Sour Grapes, there's that bit about how <laughs> sort of the wine industry works. There are wines that are, you know, by the lot. And that, you know, there's a market out there and, you know, people can buy and use their buying power to leverage certain wines. And he's been doing this forever, right? He's out there finding different kinds of wines. And he's not just picking reds. He's not just picking, you know, a Pinot Noir. He's picking different uh, varietals and blends and things like that. And he's able to do that. So you get like, you know, that needle in a haystack wine from top wineries around the world. He finds them himself blends them, sells them directly to you under his label for 50% off what you would pay at retail. Laura, I gave you a bottle of Cameron Hughes wine. What did you think? So I got a nice bottle of white wine. I think it was a Spanish wine, and it was kind of like a Riesling. Um, You know, it it was great, and it was, you know, not what I expected. I was like, because it comes kind of labeled in an interesting way. It's like, you know, lot whatever that he's purchased it. So you kind of, I actually went on the website to look up and read what it was, and I was like, ah, and it was was a very drinkable wine. I can say it didn't last too long around here, and um, (laughs) (laughs) quite tasty, and I liked they had a whole section of Chardonnay on the website. That was a whole separate section of the wines that you could order from Cameron Hughes. So I will definitely be looking there next. Back at the auction house, like all of those bottles would end up being distributed. You'd see them all and there'd be 50 different labels on them for 50 different, you know, so-called vineyards. And instead, Cameron brings them all out. Uh, All those bottles, like you said, the labels all look the same, except for a little change of color from the different varieties, and then the lot number, and it's like lot number 456. I don't know lot number 456, if that's better than this one or that one. Cameron knows, and so I trust him. We had a great Pinot the other night. I'm drinking it right now. You know, you look, look down. Like, I'm literally There's almost none it of it left. It, yeah, it's the rest of that Pinot. Oh, my God. It's quite good. It, the clincher is that Cam guarantees that all of his wines. Oh, you guys are on, like, those kind of terms. Cam now. Yeah. Oh, nice. Cam guarantees his <laughs> wines, all of them. If you are unhappy with any bottle that you buy from him, he will make it right. So find out why Cameron Hughes wine is the preferred wine choice by informed and passionate wine lovers. So I was like, Cam. You don't screw with us on this one, all right? These are crime writers on listeners. They deserve some incredible deal. And he said, "Mm, I don't know. And I I forced him. I said, man, look me in the eyes, Cam. I am not f***ing around on this. (laughs) And he's like, you drive a hard bargain. How about this? Free shipping on three or more bottles and a free sommelier-grade corkscrew. Nice. You know, I love me a good sommelier-grade corkscrew. If anyone likes a good screw, it's my wife. Oh, God. It's a great deal 
This is a great deal to try these already discounted wines. It's free shipping and a huge savings. Wine is heavy and it's expensive to ship. This wine is fantastic. This deal is fantastic. Do not miss out on this limited time offer. Go to chwine.com and use the code CRIME Crime. right now. That's chwine.com and enter CRIME. CRIME. Please enter CRIME. All right. Quickly, round the horn. It is time to review the Netflix series Mindhunter. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Do you recommend to our listeners, Laura Bricker, that they check out the first season of Mindhunter on Netflix? Laura, go. I say enthusiastic thumbs up. Um, I watched it in two days. I couldn't stop watching it. It was um, a very addictive show. Not like anything I'd watched recently. It's it's a great show. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Mindhunter's first season on Netflix? What would you say to our listeners, Toby? I give it a, an enthusiastic thumbs up. I've actually yes. recommended it to... Uh, some friends just like at work. So yeah, I thought it was really good and it was fun to binge. I also give it enthusiastic thumbs up and I can't tell you how relieved I feel about Toby's review because I literally feel like I forced him to watch the show because <laughs> as we all know, there's a lot of sports ball going on right now mm. and he's so into that. Sports ball? So thank That's you, Toby. Sports ball. Thank you, sports Toby, ball. for the sports ball. I love I really sports appreciate ball. It. <laughs> and I give it a huge enthusiastic thumbs up and to everyone who starts it and says this may not be for me, I say two words, keep going. What about you, Kevin? I give it thumbs up, way up. Nice. I thought it was great. I thought it was great. I thought it was uh, better than I expected. Glad where it went. Can't wait for season two. When you say way up, you're totally channeling Roger Ebert. Are you not? I am. <laughs> I knew you were. All right. Now it's time to move on to my favorite Actually, more part of, of the this. Gene Siskel guy, but whatever. <laughs> I question my life choices when you say that. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. Full confession, I just ripped this straight from the AP copy because I could not have written it any better, so I'm just going to read it like I'm reading it from The Wire. Want to say that? Portsmouth, New Hampshire. A Salvation Army thrift store in New Hampshire has received an urn apparently filled with cremated remains. The Portsmouth Herald reports the urn was donated earlier this month. It's bronze in color and is engraved Richard L. Pettengill, 1929 to 1981. The store is holding on to the urn in an effort to return it to the deceased's relatives. Portsmouth Police Lieutenant Michael Maloney told the Herald it's not a crime to donate an urn with ashes, but called it, quote, odd. (laughs) (laughs) Police said the urn and ashes are considered private property and whoever owned them could do with them what they wish. Here's my question for you, crime writers. What would you do if you bought a lovely vase at your local Salvation Army and found it full of the ashy remains of a human being? Toby, I'm going to start with you. I think I would take it to a Yankee swap. Laura Bricker, what about you? What would you do if you bought a lovely vase or urn at your local Salvation Army and found it full of the ashy remains of a human being? Well, it's funny. This seems to be more common than you would think. Um, this actually happened to my friend Susan. And what? <gasps> no, I swear to God. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> but it was like somebody had disposed of the ashes in the urn, but there were still some in it. So she like got it at a thrift shop. She's like, oh, look at this nice vase. And she got in her car and she opened it up and she was like, ah, like great Aunt Mabel is still in there. So she just kept on driving to the next thrift shop and dropped it off. <laughs> so I would I would take a page from that. But in this case where it was a full urn, I think I also would have alerted somebody. 
You know, it's funny because my answer is kind of along the same lines. Like, A, don't buy a vase if it has a lid, period. Like, that's what I've learned from this uh, lesson. But also, that happened to me. I would open it up. I would scream, scream, and scream, and then drive directly to one of those stupid Planet Aid, like, dumpster things and put it right in there. (laughs) Kevin, what about you? What would you do if you bought a beautiful vase at the Salvation Army and it turned out to be full of someone's ashy, dead remains? Uh, I probably would wait until the Friday before Veterans Day. Uh oh. And I would bring the earn to work, ask for a bereavement day, and take a five day weekend. <laughs> oh, excellent strategic move. All right. We should probably end it on that note. Toby Ball, if our listeners want to reach out to you and perhaps talk to you about some sports ball, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm always talking sports ball at Toby Ball NH. And Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to reach out to you and maybe follow some of your blogs about the poisonous things that cats should not be eating, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Laura Bricker. And Kevin Flynn, if our listeners want to reach out to you with yet more whiskey-based cough remedies, how can they find you online? Oh, direct message me then <laughs> at Kevin P. Flynn. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoy. And please check out my other podcast, HGTV and Me. This week's episode is all about my obsession with Chip and Joanna and Fixer Upper. You can also tweet to our show at Crime Writers On and join the fine folks in the official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group, all 2,000 of them. Or leave a comment on our regular Facebook page. Go to our website CrimeWritersOn.com to buy stuff using our Amazon link. Let's bring that list back next week, shall we? Oh, yeah. And also sign up for our newsletter. If you love the show or any of our podcasts, tell a friend. And if you haven't already, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Line production for Partners in Crime Media is done by the very handsome Henry Lavoie. Our theme song was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This show was recorded in Square Egg Studio, formerly known as Studio C, and before that, it was known as the closet in our basement where I would so definitely put some FBI people who wanted to start a profiling unit. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. What is happening in the Stephen Avery case? Can you please fill us in? Yeah. Oh, hold on. Do you hear the squeaky yeah. door? Oh, yeah. A minute. Hey, Laura. See you later. Yes. Three words for you. WD-40. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. I know. It's, it's, it's Halloween season. It's Halloween season. It's Halloween season uh, all year round on your goddamn porch. Yeah. Um, I know. Support for today's show comes from Audible. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers. Audible has an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, books like Mindhunter, duh, by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. Get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial at audible.com slash crime. Crime. Partners in Crime Media. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.